You're listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast, a cape-free zone where we share stories and break down strength and struggle narratives to reimagine lives with us at the center. I'm your host, Kayla Charleston. Now let's get into it. Happy New Year. Welcome back to the show. It is officially season two of Not The Wifey Type, the podcast, and I'm glad to be back. Happy to be having these conversations, to be sharing them with you, and hopefully for you all to be enjoying them. I'm excited about season two and what's in store and excited about today's conversation because it touched me in ways that I wasn't anticipating, even though, you know, I don't even know what I say I wasn't or I don't be anticipating it because most of these conversations, I'd be like, why are you telling my business like this? How do you know my life? However, I still, for whatever reason, you know, don't be seeing it coming. So this is a conversation about religion because we are fresh off the holidays. And, you know, some holidays are religious observances. So I figure why not start out the year and the season shaking the table a little bit. So I don't think this is the regular conversation about religion. You'll just have to keep listening in here for yourself but hopefully you all will hear something in it that you can relate to. Or if you didn't grow up as churchy as I did, which was hella churchy, then, you know, maybe there's still something in it for you. So like I said, I grew up hella churchy. My mom was so churchy that there were certain things that she did not allow in her house. And one of those things was Harry Potter. I was a Harry Potter super fan when I was a kid. Because Harry Potter came out when I was in like sixth grade and I don't know, I just, I just loved it. But my mom thought Harry Potter and she thought Harry Potter was witchcraft and she said that witchcraft was demonic. So she would not allow Harry in her house. So I used to have people sneak and buy me Harry Potter books and hide them because my mom would not. So I remember one day vividly when I was in fifth grade. This is how churchy I was. When I was in fifth grade, one day the power went out in school and all of the lights went out. There were no classrooms that had lights. So the teachers lined us up um, against the walls in the hallway so that we could all be in one place and they could watch us easier. So for most of the kids, this was a field day because our regular classroom activities were interrupted and we couldn't do our, our schoolwork. For me, it was the end of the world, literally, because... I had been preached to or taught that you had to live a holy life. And if you didn't, you were in danger of hell for eternity. So the only thing in my young mind that could be happening right now, you know, for the lights to go out and all of a sudden and nobody to know what's going on. The only thing in my mind is the rapture. Jesus has come back and this is literally the end of the world. And I was terrified because if this was the rapture, if this was the end of the world, that means I didn't get to go back with Jesus because I'm still here. So I'm going to hell. And I I was crying. I remember crying. And I remember a friend of mine asking me, what's wrong? And I remember not like kind of like being ashamed, didn't not wanting to tell her what it was and why I was scared. I remember a teacher trying to console me and telling me, oh, it's okay. The power's just out. The light's just out, you know, because I'm crying like it's the end of the world. You can imagine. So that's just 
so heavy for a child. I don't know how old you are in fifth grade, like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten. But that's something really heavy for a child to be carrying, this idea that I have to be holy or else I'm going to hell. So that's how I grew up. And it wasn't until I got to college and got like out of the house and exposed to different ideas that I began to really be able to think critically about the religious teachings that I had been exposed to. And that's what this part of our conversation is about on this episode is how black church tradition sets black women up to live lives where they accept less. And it's really insidious because I, I didn't even know it was happening until I was away from it. So Our conversation is actually two parts. The first part is the part on this episode. The second part, we talk, we talk about manifesting, which I thought was also timely since it's the beginning of the year and people like to set their intentions and their goals. So once you're done listening to part one, part two is already also live. So go ahead and skip on over to listen to that. But hopefully in part one, you find something in here that speaks to you. For today's guest, at the top of the year, we have D. Danielle Thomas, who is the creator of Unfit Christian, which is a digital platform for progressive and justice-centered faith politics. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Happy to have you. So I wanted to have you on the show at the top of the year because we just, uh, well, by the time this airs, it will have been just past the holidays. And so some of those holidays were, you know, um, religious observances. So, you know, why not start the year off talking about religion and some other things like manifesting? So let's jump into it if you're ready. All right. right. Tell us a little bit about your background. Basically, where did you grow up and was it churchy? Oh, child, of course it was churchy because giving it to God who is the head of my life. Let me establish protocol. No. (laughs) (laughs) I actually was born in Tallahassee, Florida, raised here in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I have spent the majority of my life. I have lived, of course, obviously both in Florida. Um, I spent some of my formative years in South Georgia in a small town called Portal, Georgia, right outside of Statesboro in Bullock County. Um, So that's where a lot of my father, so my paternal lineage is is through that area in Bullitt County and in Florida. And then I also spent a couple years of my life raised in South Carolina, just outside of the Greenville area. So, um, but the majority, I always tell people I'm an Atlanta made. I was Florida born and Atlanta matured. So that is where I spent most of my life in terms of geography. But um, in terms of, of raising, I grew up in a very typical Black household, um, which was deeply churched. My experience is charismatic Pentecostal. So speaking in tongues, shouting, falling out, prophecy, all of that is is my church and religious background. And with all of that came every oppression and marginalization you can think of um, being a Black woman. So I, sexism, internalized misogyny, misogynoir, which we now have language for now, but didn't then in the time of my coming up. Um, sexism, classism. Uh, anti-blackness, uh, <laughs> pretty much 
much everything you can name. Mm-hmm. Homophobia, transphobia, before we even had a sociological concept for that, transphobia. Um, everything you can name that we see as a systemic ill and injustice was something that I was definitely enculturated in, in my church experience. So I grew up very churchy, specifically Black church, which if you know, you know, that's a whole different culture as opposed to just straight up evangelical church, which is more typically associated with um, white, white experiences of Christian faith. But yeah, that was that was pretty much my background, deeply churchy. I participated in purity culture, um, which girl, we can get into that later. But <laughs> I deeply um, adhered to those values until about college. Um, I always tell people that college was my transformative experience because I finished high school at 16. So I was entering college at 17 and kind of going through still being in a formative time of my life of being so young and then being exposed to so many new concepts and ideologies and um, learnings really put me in a place of challenging my experience of God to that point with what I wanted my experience of God to be going forward. Mm -hmm. And so would you say you internalize a lot of those um, isms or oppressions from the church um, growing up? I would say a lot of them I did, except interestingly enough, the one that I never really fully gave myself to was the homophobia. Um, Mm -hmm. I always kind of questioned that particular concept. So I was one of those hate the sin, love the sinner type of Christians, because that was Mm -hmm. like the nice middle ground. But as I continue to kind of grapple with it, first of all, I am a person who experiences sexual attraction to both women and men. So I've known that for years of my whole life. Although I primarily partner romantically with men, I still have attractions to women. And Mm -hmm. so as someone who kind of experienced that, I guess like they say, it hits you where you live, right? So for Mm -hmm. me, I could get with all the other shit, even though it was problematic, but then it was kind of like, wait a minute, I kind of like girls. I don't want to go to hell. Like, you know what I'm saying? So that was the one that I kind of didn't really give myself over to. But absolutely, everything else, I had to unwork and undo a whole lot of anti-Black sentiment, which is really what I can kind of umbrella it as. Anti-Black sentiment, which of course was anti-Black women, um, anti-intelligence, like just so much shit happened in church that never really kind of set right with me in terms of logic, but I was able to accept it because that was the conditioning was what you didn't understand logically. You had to accept by faith. You just had to take it as a thing of God understands and knows more and it's more wise than you and your ways are not God's ways. So that's how we kind of explain and rationalize these, these horrible things. But I will say while I accepted it, it never really logically made sense. And I think, I think for me, that fact that I could never accept it logically is what gave me room to, when it came time to unpack it, to be able to unpack it because I didn't buy into a hook, line, and sinker to begin with. Mm-hmm. I was nodding my head through all that because, first of all, you brought back memories with the speaking in tongues and the casting out demons. <laughs> I grew up in the church too, and I, my mama was a minister, so we were in church at least three days a week. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, yes. But I also, in terms of things um, you're not necessarily able to recon- reconcile, I I had family who was also churchy and um, 
struggle with like sexuality because you're not supposed to if you're not married you're not supposed to be sexual right right? so I I to me growing up that didn't make sense to me is okay we're humans and we have sexual desires and you're not married are you just supposed to never have sex so that was one of the things that I struggled with um reconciling you know growing up in the church and being churchy but you know what I think is interesting about this is is that like for women like us so I think about the intersections that we sit at as black women we are not fair-skinned. We are not the standard close to European aspect of beauty, but black enough to still claim that I have a black spouse. And so on, on one hand, they condition us to limit and um, pare down our sexuality to only being expressed within marriage. But what they didn't prepare us for is that we weren't going to be the marriageable girls. So we weren't going to be the girls that they, by the time we were 22, 23, they already had a spouse picked for us. We weren't going to be that girls. Me as a fat bodied woman, I was not going to be that girl. Um, me as a dark skinned black woman, I was not going to be that girl. Me as a smart black woman, I was not going to be that girl. And so here I am. I didn't have my first sexual intercourse until I was 20 because of purity culture. So I was 20 20 years old before I had sex for the first time. And even then I was like, okay, well, he's my first, so he's going to be my only. So I'm going to try to force this relationship that has no business being like something that I'm trying to push towards marriage. But my religiosity made me try to push that relationship towards marriage. We obviously didn't get married. And so when we broke up when I was 22, I think I had maybe two more sexual partners before I became abstinent for seven years. So from 22 to 30, I did not have sex. Um, and I was in a relationship that by all means, by the church definition, was healthy because we weren't having sex. Um, but it was the most unhealthy, emotionally damaging relationship that I have ever participated in as an adult. Um And it spent so much time suppressing my sexuality, like the church wanted me to, that it has taken me years of therapy. I'll be 33 in June. It has taken me years of therapy to really reconcile my head with my body, to reconcile Mm -hmm. my sacredness with my spirituality and my sexuality, knowing that it takes all three to work. And so while they tell us that our sex should only be reserved for these things, so we get enculturated very early on as black girls that sex is reserved for marriage and good girls do and good girls don't. Right. Mm-hmm. But we also don't acknowledge the fact that many of us as black girls have unwanted intimate touch way earlier before we even understand what making a choice is for our bodies. We are taught that our bodies belong to God and then they belong to our dads and then they belong to our husbands, but never to ourselves. And mm-hmm. because we never have autonomy, we begin to internalize these these sexual um, advances, these, these non-consenting assaults really um, as something that just kind of happens and something that we are not in control of because we're never in control of our bodies. And then you expect us to get married and suddenly become these these sex kittens who are all knowing and all knowledgeable about sex and then our spouses cheat on us because we're too terrified to actually engage our sexuality and it's because we have been taught that sex is bad and never had a period of time of saying wait a minute no it's not consenting sex is never bad first of all there's only only kind of sex is consenting everything else is rape so 
when you get beyond that and you start to consider the ways in which like church has enabled abuse and religiosity has enabled us to not have autonomy over our bodies, that's when you begin to really kind of unpack what the real sin is here. We were taught that the sin was in sex, but really the sin is in stripping young girls of their agency before they even have an opportunity to explore what their bodies look, feel, and, and experience pleasure as. I didn't mean to go down that path, girl, but you, know. <laughs> you said a mouthful and it was amazing. It was great. <laughs> so you addressed a question that I had been planning on asking is one of the things, um, are there norms or rules that you saw growing up in church about girls or women and like who enforced them and did you follow them or did you book against them? And you basically answered all of that. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate it. <laughs> I just get on the roll and it just comes out. <laughs> that's fine. That's, that's what we're here for. So kind of related to that, were there things we, we like to, on this, on this episode, or I'm sorry, on this show, we talk about like mammies and mules, black women being mammies oh, and mules. So are there ways um, the Chris, the black Christian tradition kind of set black women up to be mammies or mules? Girl, yes. <laughs> Girl, yes. I honestly think, so as a black woman in her early thirties, this is now something I'm unpacking is like, so girl, I know you've heard of like this movement of normalizing luxury for black women. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, Mm -hmm. I am so here for it because so many of us think indulging in self-care is a luxury, myself included. So this is something I have begun to unpack. And as I have been doing that deconstruction work, I realized that a lot of that has been rooted in the idea of and go with me here, sis, because this might be a little mouthful too, is that church has really kind of taught us that our position in this world is to be of service. So when you look at the composition of any Black church, the majority of its congregation, its flock, is going to be women. Mine is no different. Even as a digital pastor, the majority of my congregation is women. Um, but yet when you look at the the prelate or the prelate, however you want to pronounce that word, the, the people who preside, the ministers who's in the pulpit, it's usually men, right? And so men lead in terms of the preaching, in terms of who's the deacons, who gets basically the head position of the church. But hospitality, usher ministries, nurses guild, all the things that require service and nurturing are led by women. And we're taught that these are places to aspire to. We should not aspire to the pulpit. That's too much. That's the man's place. But places where we can be of service, invisible service, no less, thankless jobs, no less. When's the last time you've heard of somebody thanking the hospitality ministry individually for who runs it, as opposed to just as a whole of saying, we're thankful the hospitality ministry basically set up enough to feed 10,000 people with a $10 budget, right? (laughs) So we thank Black women consistently for being in places of service and nurturing. So much so to the point, this is why I think it's related, um, is that we begin to operate in every space of our life from a place of service. So we go into our workplace and we are not necessarily as aggressive in taking roles of leadership because we've already been kind of taught by our churches and our communities, these communal agreements that those kind of things are for men and women who get into those places 
should expect to compromise not having a spouse, not having a family, not having a social life. So when she complains about not having balance, we tell her that's her fault because what she should have done was go to a position of service. It happens when we go into our home. So let's say we do partner. We expect or are okay with taking on 50-50 relationships, um, which is a scam. Let me be very clear because you will never do 50% of the work. You're always going to do about 80 to to 90. Because not only are you coming in and saying, we're going to split these bills 50-50, you have worked an eight-hour job and then come home and do a domestic labor shift with getting the kids together, getting the house together, getting meals together, and preparing for the next day to keep the operations of the household moving smoothly, while also now having to serve in the capacity of spousal duties of emotional labor, sexual labor, and even more domestic labor that is exclusive to your spouse. So we get go into these things and we kind of take them and say, oh, well, that just means I'm a strong Black woman. We wear resiliency as a badge of honor. Is it part of our toolkit? Sure. But should it be the main reason that people come to us is our resiliency and our ability to nurture? No. So what happens then when we take these positions of always being of service and always being the nurturing people? We find it really trickles into our sex life. And I think this is a thing that a lot of us are not paying attention to, but it's real. So when we put ourselves in a position of service in every other place, We don't expect pleasure when it comes to sex. So think about how much we have normalized that women don't have orgasms in heterosexual sex. Like that is just normal. It's just a, okay, well, you know, women are just unlikely to come by vaginal penetration or women are unlikely to have any kind of orgasm with a male partner. And so we begin to soothe and satiate that need by saying, well, at least we're bringing pleasure. So we make excuses, and I yeah, and I and oh, <laughs> you tapped on something because I feel like I have in the past I have said that I have been like oh well it was still pleasurable even if I didn't have an orgasm but like sis no <laughs> I should be having orgasms you too. should have orgasms too even if it requires a different methodology not every woman comes the same. Let me say that again. Not every woman comes the same. Some women enjoy oral sex and some women don't. Some women enjoy clitoral stimulation and some women don't. Some of us enjoy and some women do not have clitorises. So mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. women who have who have penises. So mm-hmm. like we have to think about the just that alone, the fact that there are different experiences of womanhood should let us know that there are different experiences of sexual pleasure. But regardless, I think this is almost, I don't know, I haven't talked to enough trans women to understand if this is something they experience too. Um, but I know that majority of cisgender women do not experience full gamut of sexual pleasure in their sexual relationships. So we begin to make up pleasure in the mind or we take our pleasure from giving pleasure because, again, that is where we get most of our um, praise is in the way that mm-hmm. we can nurture other people and the way that we can provide and mule and labor for others is usually how we recognize um, or how we are recognized. If you think that's a lie, I tell you what, go on Twitter right now or go on your Facebook or go on whatever your social media platform purpose is. You could create a clubhouse room if you want to, sis. And I tell you what, ask men to name the reasons that they love women or the women in their lives and see if they can give you five reasons without listing something that she does. Mm-hmm. 
It, they won't. They can't. <laughs> they can't. They can't. Because we are used to being used for service. And so that's why I really like this movement about normalizing luxury. Because I think when we begin to, as Black women, start to say, wait a minute, something's not right here. I'm not getting everything I should get out of this experience. And I, I just want more of us to come into this realization that we deserve more. And if you want to take it from a religious perspective, you can look at the text that says, Jesus is like, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. There is nothing abundant by using your life to be in service of other people with at the expense of yourself. Now, there's nothing wrong with service. Don't get me wrong. But when that service is constantly at the expense of yourself, child, trash. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it can be very insidious in, for coming from the church because, you know, you grow up in the church. And so yeah. if that's what you grew up in, like... That's a lot of challenging and unlearning and relearning and stuff to to have to do. I think what makes it so insidious from the church is that you have to think about the fact that when it comes from a religious authority, it becomes very tied to God. And as black women, I can't speak for white women. I don't live their experience and I have problems with white women in general and their whiteness. But speaking for black women and two black women, for us, when our churches relate our goodness and our holiness and our wholeness to being the ways in which we show up in the lives of other people, it so it's it's a concept called religious patriarchy, which is so much more damaging than just regular straight old run of the mill secular patriarchy, I guess, for 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 opposing thought. But the reason it becomes so dangerous is because you connect it to God. And so when you stop doing these things and you stop performing these ways, you start to question whether or not you are in right relationship with God. Like this becomes this whole thing about like, if you believe in hell as a concept, I don't. But if you believe in hell as a final destination for the soul, you start to think about, oh my God, I'm going to hell because my pastor said I need to serve in this way and I'm not doing this for my husband. I'm not doing this for, most of them can't even and give room to the idea that their spouse may be a wife, but that's a whole other thing. I'm not giving this thing to my husband. I'm not giving these things to my kids. I'm not doing blah, 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 blah. Um, and so you begin to attach that, that act of service as an act of sacredness and as a, a form of holiness. Um, and we focus so much on wholeness that we forget to focus on being whole. So we're so worried about being holy that we're not being whole. You touched on, you just touched on something else. Listen, stop speaking my life, okay? Because I remember, I remember growing up, I remember being like seven, eight years old and terrified that I wasn't living right and I was yeah. going to go to hell. At any minute, the rapture was going to happen and Absolutely. I wasn't going to get caught up. Seven, eight years old. Why am I this young worried about not living right? So, Absolutely. yes. Yeah, yeah, that's how we come up. Like, girl, I remember used to being like, "Oh, Lord, don't let the rapture come before I get to have sex." God, I don't want to be raptured <laughs> as a virgin. Yeah, <laughs> like these are real ass worries that you have as a churchy kid growing up. Like, yes, you wake up anybody at your house. Oh my God, did the rapture come while I was sleep? That has happened to me before. I don't understand the trauma. That is trauma. Like we should laugh about that shit That's now. That's trauma. That trauma. <laughs> no, seriously, I talked to, talk to a therapist about that. No joke. That is trauma oh, for real. Hell yeah, you yes. have to. So like. That's why I think it's so important that we have these conversations because I think it reveals ways in which the church 
and religious teachings have been insidious that we don't even recognize. And a lot of this shit you don't recognize until you start trying to deconstruct it. Like you can't figure out why you can't bring yourself to have sex with someone after such a long period of abstinence. And like when you do, like you have all this guilt and shame associated with it. It's because you have conditioned yourself through religious texts, through religious teachings, through community of religious folks to tell you that like all this sex is bad and they suddenly want you to flip the switch when you get to the altar. Um, and it just doesn't work that way. Like I've, I've been thinking about some of these folks who have gotten married and their whole thing has been like their virginity. I'm, I'm bringing it on two folks. One, remember that girl who got married? She was like the pastor's kid. I think she married Tim Bowman, the gospel singer. And like she presented her dad the certificate of virginity when she got married, like on her wedding day girl at the reception. I was just so appalled, but I'm not surprised. But what I thought about with that was like, what becomes your identity then? You have spent mm. two decades or more parading yourself and priding yourself on this lack of sexual engagement and intimacy well what becomes of it then and are you really experiencing full sexual pleasure when you haven't even allowed yourself to begin to develop what is pleasure to you and so I can't imagine that she's in this relationship sexually with her spouse and her pleasure needs are being met in a really meaningful way as opposed to her doing what so many of us do and finding pleasure and giving pleasure to others. And I can't help but say like, this is definitely because of how she was enculturated by her father as a pastor. I'm a PK too, so I understand. Um, but surprisingly, my daddy was Baptist. Okay. So my daddy went out here about when I was abstinent while my dad was still alive. Um, he was like, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. You need to go out here and get some dick daddy. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm up here trying to do the right thing. But it's funny because Again, that even goes to talking about the ways in which men use our labor or expect us to labor. My dad was interested in me having sex because it would produce in his hope a grandchild that he would get to spend time with before he passed. So that was even in his interest because when I was coming up, of course, as a girl, like my dad shunned, basically he didn't shun me, but he was just, he reacted so harshly when I started my cycle at 13. Um, he was like, I don't want to know about that. Get that away from me. That's gross. Like, imagine being my dad at his big age talking about natural menses of the body is gross. And imagine me at my small age feeling rejection from somebody who was like, you know, I had a very tense relationship with my dad, but I always felt like he he loved me. Um, so it felt like a sense of rejection there that the man, the first model of manhood in my life is shunning something that my body does naturally as a woman, mm -hmm. while also telling me that this body cannot experience sexual pleasure, while also telling me that I better not be out here having sex, essentially, despite the fact that at my age, he was already sexually active. And then when my brother, who is about 12 years younger than me, was 13, I was out buying condoms for him at my dad's request. Mm -hmm. So when you think about shit like that and like the ways in which just we are up, we, we like to say that like daughters are 
are trained, whereas sons are raised in the Black community. So as daughters, we get trained about what to do, what not to do, and how to be in service of other people. And that gets reinforced by our churches, is reinforced by our schools. If we go to majority Black schools where we have a lot of Black teachers, a lot of Mm -hmm. Black cultural norms are reinforced in the classroom, is reinforced in our social circles, is reinforced in our families. So we never have an opportunity until we get to a college, until shit, sometimes we get around white folks and experience that they are raised and enculturated in different ways Um, until we are outside of our bubble we don't know that what we're experiencing inside is not exactly normal or even the healthiest thing to experience Mm -hmm. and so that's a good segue Um, is that kind of what led you to create the unfit christian as the platform yeah basically so here's the thing when i started unfit christian i just started writing posts in 2014 on facebook And anybody who knows me knows that I am a very verbose writer. And so (laughs) because of that, folks was just like, listen, these long ass Facebook statuses and it's just just start a blog. And I was like, I don't want to start a blog. Ain't nobody going to listen to me. I really thought I was just going to be an echo chamber. So in 2016, my dad died in January 2016. And in April, I launched Unfit Christian officially as a blog. Even then, thought I was just going to be talking to myself, thought I was just going to be in an echo chamber. Here we are five years later. That is not the case. It turns out I was speaking the language and putting words to a lot of experiences that people had shared with me, but didn't have the language for. And so when I created Unfit Christian, I really just wanted to have a place to say, listen, there are some of us who still subscribe to Christianity in part or in full, but we don't think about it in the way that we have been raised to think about it. And Our churches are not a safe space for us to unpack this shit. Like our churches do not give us room to talk about our bodies as sexual and sacred. The church doesn't give us room to talk about like the ways in which it has harmed us. The church doesn't give us room to really unpack what it means to be queer, what it means to be trans, what it means to experience life outside of being cisgender and heterosexual and black. Like it doesn't really give us room to talk about those things. And so that was what made me decide I want to launch a space that could give room to talk about those things, even if I was just talking to myself. And so I want to say I started in April and in May I had my first viral post because I think I wrote Jose one you just lost in May of 2016 or June, something like that. But I think it was May. And so that was my first viral post. And I really just kind of started breaking into this idea of, how we talk about hoes and the way that we label women who have embraced their sexuality, even if they engage in promiscuity, which I think is another patriarchal term, but that's a whole other thing. Um, (laughs) We don't really have conversations about the ways in which we have had sex weaponized against us and then in turn weaponized that against other women. I really wanted women to see that this dichotomy that they were playing into was not for our benefit, but that shit just kind of helps men continue to be ain't shit and not to step up to the plate and be honest about what they're looking for when they're choosing a spouse. Because when we talk about hoes and women who we perceive to be as less than because of their sexual agency, these are still the men that women are, these are still the women that men are picking, right? 
And so for some reason, there's something about them that's more attractive about the hoe than it is about you, the good girl. And so let's talk about that Madonna whore complex and let's really break it down. And so that was the first one. Then I wrote another one about a cult leader, excuse me, another Christian influencer celebrity uh, <laughs> who is still has me fucked to this day. But also that blog is that post still get, makes the rounds to this day. Um, and that was five years ago. So I just kept writing these things um, from the experience of these. This is my lived experience with church. These are the things that I am unpacking. And this is what I have learned in this process. And somehow it has seen fit to be that voice for folks who have been experiencing this. I thought I was just writing for millennials at first, but I have a huge segment of Gen Xers. Um, of course, Gen Zers are coming up behind them. But like the Gen Xers who bought into my message astounded me. I did not understand that people in that age group um, who I felt like were big participants in that church culture were also very wary and exhausted of that particular type of church culture. So it is made for a very rich experience of having multi-generations to hear from, to engage with and do community with and understanding what it's like to have maybe a Christian foundation having grown up in the church, but not necessarily feeling like being part of the church today or even being part of the faith tradition of Christianity today. I hope a lot of people transition away from Christianity, believe it or not. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I have people who will come to me and they are have come from a deeply Christian background, Church of God in Christ, so Pentecostal, Baptist, um, even on the the more, uh, what's the nice word euphemism I'm looking for for this? Even on the more multicultural side of like <laughs> Methodism and <laughs> um, what's the other one? Episcopalian. So like that kind of thing. Catholicism. I also have a lot of Catholics, but like folks will come to me with those experiences. And then like, as we begin to deconstruct, I like to call it their experience of God. I like to think of people's religious faith as their experience of God, because you can have multiple experiences of God throughout your lifetime if you let it. So people will come to me with that particular experience that was very oppressive, very marginalized, very much in a box. And then as we begin to deconstruct these beliefs to help them identify beliefs that actually resonate with them, they either walk away as agnostic um, or Christian in culture only. So they'll be like, I'm a cultural Christian or I'm a social Christian. Or they will be like, hey, I'm Christian plus, which is my identity. So they have a base of Christianity and then add on other faith practices such as ancestral veneration or initiating into an African traditional religion. Although I would argue that Christianity is an ATR, but that's a whole nother episode, girl. We ain't got enough time. Um, <laughs> and uh, or they'll go into like Buddhism. I have some people who have converted to Islam. So like there are people who come in one way and they come out another. My goal is never to convert anybody to Christianity. First of all, that is colonialism. Second of all, um, I don't participate in that white shit. You either want to be part of it or you don't. Right. And I, I don't necessarily think that is the only path towards salvation, um, which is another very uh, colonized concept, but anyway, uh, mm -hmm. that it, it's not the only path to enlightenment. Let's put it that way. It's not the only path to feel spiritually grounded. So when people come to me, my only thing is to get them to an experience of God that feels authentic and that feels like it accepts and looks at and loves the whole of them. 
A lot of Christianity likes to love people in parts. So we'll be on that hate to hate to see and love the center type of shit. But we will have gay folks directing our choirs over our music ministries and our hospitality ministries. And we want them there to participate in all those things. But we don't want the gay part of them. That shit don't make no sense. And so I don't ever want to perpetuate an experience of God that only loves you in parts. I always want to give people an experience where they feel loved as a whole. Right. So when did you realize that you were like on the right path or doing what you were meant to um, with Unfit Christian? Okay, I'm going to try not to cry telling this story. I'm going to try not to cry telling this story. Cry if you want to, girl. Here's how I knew I was. Here's how I knew what I was doing was bigger than what I ever thought it would be. Um, so in 2018 or was it 2017, one of those years we did an outing. So we, so I have a digital congregation called the Unfit Christian Congregation. It is a Facebook group of over 4,000 folks. So that's the core congregation, but I like to think of my fan base at large as a congregation, but the particular core one, um, uh, we, we try to get together and do physical outings, you know, when outside was open pre-COVID. So... <laughs> We try to get together and do physical outings. Um, I want to say this is 2018. It was. And so we did an outing at dinner and then we went to the strip clubs afterwards because that's the kind of pastor I am. We will go eat and then go watch strippers. And so we went and did that that night. But we had two two folks who found their way to one another. Um, and so the one of the wives, because they're, they're, they're married now. Um, one of them, one of the partners, I actually, when she came to me, she had just come out. So she had just kind of reconciled the fact that, Hey, you know what? I've been dating niggas, but I really don't want to be with men. I don't even like men like that. I'm a whole lesbian in these streets. And so she just figured that out. And so, um, she came to me because she was trying to reconcile her sexual identity, of course, with her religious identity. And so that's what I do. I'm going to deconstruct the text and be like, listen, all the, the texts of terror that have been used against you and marginalizing you as a gay person, that shit ain't even what they think it is. Let's break this down. God loves you as a whole. And here goes the citations to prove it. So, you know, I'm getting her to a place of acceptance and, and, and finding that middle ground, that commonality that helps her live a whole life. So that's one partner. And then the other partner had been dating men to that point and was kind of identifying as queer, but had not gone into a serious relationship with a woman. Well, they met that night and connected and was basically inseparable since then. So we called them our first couple. Um, But what let me know that I was really doing it right was when they got engaged and um, immediately before they got engaged, um, the one, the spouse who came to me to reconcile her faith and sexuality, she was like, I want you to marry us. And I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> I was like, I went from just being like trying to be a blogger and just like maybe having a Facebook group where people kick it and like have fun to being a full fledged digital pastor to actually really like starting families by marriage. Right. And so I married them this summer in July. So they were supposed to have like this really big wedding, um, this past September, but of course COVID changed that they still wanted to be married. And they were like, we still want you to marry us. So I flew to Houston in July and married them. And that was the moment 
where I realized like there's a scripture that was like that basically says go through all these lists of things about what can never separate us from the love of Christ. And I used that scripture to talk about their their wedding the day afterwards when I posted a picture about it on my social media. And I was like, you know, for queer folks who are looking for affirmation, like there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. And like there is nothing that could keep you from having the love that you desire except you and except these narratives that you are believing that don't serve you, that do not offer you what you need in order to to live a full and whole life as you are and not code switching to be who someone wants you to be. Same with my first couple, but they're not my last. Another couple just asked me to marry them next year. So like, it's been kind of a thing that said, oh, oh, sis, this is so much bigger than you ever thought it was going to be. You are literally transforming lives and helping people to start new lives in a whole and healthy way. And that I'm glad I made through without crying, but it just really touches me because they they all have cited me as like the source of, hey, I was able to make this leap or, you know, this person helped me along my journey to get me to where I am today. Y'all see the finished product, but this person was here to help me unpack and build to get to where I am today. And that's what let me know I was doing it right. And that's perfect because the Unfit Christian is a platform that you kind of brought um, to fruition. So we can kind of switch gears and talk about manifesting because I know you're kind of big on manifesting. So uh, I'll start with the question, what does manifesting mean to you? We're going to end this episode here, but like I said, this was a two-part conversation. The conversation was so good, I couldn't possibly figure out what to cut to make it under an hour. So I decided to give it to you all in two parts. For the second part, we are talking about manifesting and specifically manifestation as it pertains to black people, because I do feel like there's a lot out there about manifesting and it's popular to talk about, you know, manifesting your dreams and blah, blah, blah. But I, I feel like a lot of it does not also take into account black experiences. And blackness always matters. Blackness is always a factor. So that's what we're talking about on the second part of this conversation. And it's already live. It's already waiting for you to go check out right now. Thank you for listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe so you'll know when new episodes drop and rate and review so others will know how much you love the show too. If you want to keep up with me personally, you can follow me on Instagram at Not The Wifey Type. Until next time, I'm reminding you to belong to yourself. <laughs>